Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Amen. Thanks, my friend. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you. It's such a um, humbling honor to be able to do this in our community. If you're new to our community, um, I want to say welcome. My name's Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we have uh, wanted to spend some time uh, talking a little bit about what exactly the Bible is. Um, Obviously, as a church community, the Bible holds a central place of authority. We hold it uh, and understand it to be God's word. Uh, and inspired, but very often, um, and, and we see this, right? For a lot of us, the Bible is a source of incredible inspiration. For others, it's a source of incredible frustration. Um, for some of us, it's been weaponized in really harsh and mean ways against us. I mean, we've just, we, we, there doesn't seem to be uh, some unified approach uh, to how it is that we understand this. And so we just wanted to spend some time talking about what what is the Bible, how does it work, and what is it trying to accomplish. So a couple weeks ago, we introduced the idea that the Bible is the product of human and divine partnership. And that's the story of the Bible, is the story of human and divine partnership. So not surprisingly, the book that records the story of human and divine partnership is itself human and divine partnership. And so you have, you know, instances where the, the biblical writers, God just says, hey, write this down, and they write it down. Other times there are visions, other times, um, you know, uh, Paul will say, well, I don't have a command for, from Jesus on this, but I'm, you know, deputized kind of as an apostle, and so I'll offer my opinion here. And you have this beautiful, beautiful uh, partnership of divine, uh, a divine agency and intelligence and design and human participation. It was week one. Last week, we introduced the idea of um, a, a concept called accommodation, which sounds kind of weird. Um, accommodation just means that, that because it's a partnership, God adapts and adjusts to the humans as he finds them. And that a lot of what we read in the Old Testament isn't God's ideal will for people, but it's triage, it's damage control, it's, okay, so now you're murdering, let's, not ha- let's have a command to not murder. Right? We, we, we looked last week at the idea that uh, the ideal for uh, male-female relations was um, uh, one husband, one wife, one covenant. Uh, but then on page four, we meet Lemek, who has two wives. And in fact, almost all of the big-time biblical heroes have more than one wife. And so the ideal is in Genesis 2. The real is what Israel turns out to be doing. And so God gives them a command in Exodus well, if you're going to marry more than one, then make sure you provide for the first one if you marry another. Is that God's ideal will for marriage? No, we met the ideal in Genesis 2. Gen- or Exodus is instead an accommodation to the sinfulness of human hearts. This is exactly what Jesus says about divorce. A bunch of Pharisees get into a debate with him, and um, they're asking about this passage in Deuteronomy 24 where Moses says, if you're going to divorce, write a certificate of divorce. And when Jesus gets brought into that debate, he quotes Genesis 2. No, at the beginning, God intended, right, 
A, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. And he, he offers this teaching on divorce that causes the Pharisees to go, yeah, 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 but what about Deuteronomy 24 where we do the certificate of divorce thing? And Jesus says, guys, Moses didn't command you to do that. He permitted you to do that because of the hardness of your hearts. And so what we see reflected in a lot of the Bible isn't what God endorses. It's what, it's, it's what God is doing damage control over. God never intended for human beings to own other human beings. But when they decide to commit themselves to that, God then offers law about how to do that. God never intended uh, for multiple partners in a marriage relationship. But when the humans decide that that's the way they're going to live, God offers law and triage in response. Now, typically what we would do is we would move on to a new topic today, and we'd open the scriptures, and we'd go nuts in, on all the Bible stuff, and it would be glorious. We had so many questions from last week. We did a podcast on it, so if you want to check out Journey Now podcast, but there were so many left over, um, we thought it best to sort of do a bit of a review before we move on to any other topic, because the questions were glorious, all right? So what we're going to do for the first part of this teaching is not actually teach, we're just going to like honor the questions that were asked, and again, I don't posture myself as some in incredible linguistic biblical expert. Uh, I'll be glad to share my thoughts, but the goal of this, remember, is to normalize asking questions and wrestling with the text and community. After we do um, a series of questions, then I'll try to, if we have time, get to the idea of inerrancy and how does inerrancy work with accommodation? And how do those two things relate together, all right? So that's that's what we're doing. If you're new, you're catching us in the middle of a pretty thick conversation. We were voted most intelligent church by, um, by intelligentchurch.com, and, um, and so we try to live up to that. There's a lot of pressure. I'm like, that, wow. I'm here. It was Toys R Us. That, Toys that, R Us? That, yes. That voted for us? Yes. First of all, I'm delighted Toys R Us are still in business. Secondly... That sounds about right. This is a clown show, no question about it. Now, if as I go along answering questions, you have more questions, which is I'm, I'm very worried this is what's going to happen, there's the phone number. Now, um, some of the questions you asked last week, we're going to cover when we hit Genesis. So I'm not answering Genesis questions. Some of the questions you asked last week weren't directly related to accommodation, so I'm only going to talk about accommodation questions, okay? But we save all of these and have them, and my goodness. All right. Are you ready? Um, and just so you know, the last one deals with homosexuality, so that'll be great. Um, question number one, or really more of a comment. Can I submit a cautionary word? And the answer always is a yes. In all the discussion of God accommodating us, let us not forget that we are his creation. We, as his creation, are too. D2, by his mercy and empowering, live for, align ourselves with, surrender to, and to ultimately accommodate him. Correct? So, yes. One of the, one of the objections uh, to approaching the Bible, recognizing its humanness, is that somehow um, we present a picture of the Bible that's, that's human-centered. 
And, and certainly we don't want to do that because what humans do with the accommodations we find in the Bible is accommodate us, right? So like divorce, Jesus had to speak against divorce because that command in Deuteronomy was used to divorce, men could divorce women for any and every reason. And as long as they wrote a certificate, it didn't care if it was petty, selfish, unloving. And so they used the accommodation as an excuse to violate the heart of God. And so absolutely that caution is necessary. The reason, though, that God accommodates is to draw us to the ideal. God is not accommodating, saying, guys, it's okay. We can work with this. What God's doing is saying, hey, hey, and we do this as parents, right? The kid does something that we weren't exactly planning for them to do, and all of a sudden we're in a new situation, and we go, oh, okay, so this is how it's going to be, and we shepherd in that situation, but the goal of the shepherding is to always point to the ideal. All right? So, so the next set of questions have to do with, well, isn't accommodation just permission for us to sin? So there are four questions that ask this, and we'll read them all. How do we discern uh, accommodation that God permits versus the progressive and tolerance accepting of everything uh, culture today. Why is God willing to accommodate sinfulness? Isn't accommodation essentially permission? Is complying with accommodation sinful, like eating meat or divorce? In regards to the real, which is what real human history is, versus the ideal, is the real still sin? Is everything sin that is not the ideal? If you are a polygamist, but you're following God's real instructions, are you sinning? Right? So if you follow the Exodus command to take care of your first wife, but you're a polygamist, is that obedience or not? Right? And what's the answer? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, it would be like, let's say, let's say and may it not be in our community, but let's say a spouse gets caught in adultery. And they, they come to us, this broken family, and they say, okay, here's the real. We've broken the marriage vows. We want to jettison, you know, the relationship. What should we do? And what we would respond with, or what your friends or family would respond with, was, well, okay, let's talk about wisdom. Now that this has happened, you, should, you need to break off contact with the other person. You need to have consequences if you do contact the other person. You need to engage in therapy or whatever, we would give wisdom and triage in the midst of the break of the ideal, correct? Now, it's wisdom if they listen and do the wisdom that we're giving, correct? They could choose not to. But we wouldn't have to give that wisdom had the ideal not already been broken. So in one sense, it's very wise to listen to the accommodations because they're wisdom and triage for fallen humanity. But anything less than the ideal is sin. And remember, guys, sin isn't moral transgression. Sin is a failure to be fully human in the way God intended. It includes moral transgression, but if we're not image-bearing Yahweh's beauty and goodness into the world, we have sinned. And so even in our failure, God comes in not as permission but rather as wisdom to restore us back to what the ideal might look like. Think of it this way. Suppose you're a missionary. And suppose your heart, as you go to sub-Saharan Africa, let's say, 
is to introduce, to be committed long-term. You're not coming as the, the great white hope. You're, you know, all the healthy things that we could do. But you're, you come into a tribe that is practicing inhu, inhumane behaviors against women. And for them, that's been the norm for hundreds if not thousands of years. And let's say your heart for this people is to introduce them to the beauty of the, the gospel and the love of Jesus. There's a sense in which you have to accept the culture as it is in order to then, in a very long, kind of um, enduring sort of way, love them and introduce them into the idea of Jesus and his love so that someday that inhumane behavior will change, but you don't start there, correct? How many of you have had friends who have just become brand new Jesus followers? Do you sit down with them and list all the sins they're committing and say, okay, we got work to do? Or do we naturally say that there are some things that are far more important than others? Right? I was a chaplain for a, a police department in California, and we had, a, we had a whole crew of guys decide they wanted to study the Bible. And the issues in their lives were just chaos. But is that where we started? No, we just started on the very basic idea that God is for you, not against you. And then, but does that mean we're approving of all the behaviors? No. Does God, is, as God accommodates us, does that mean, hey, guys, no. If you're going to own slaves, do it this way, and that's what I'm stoked about. No. No. But it's triage to point us back to the ideal. Does this make sense? So accommodation is not permission. Although, Evil human hearts can use it that way, correct? And remember, Paul, when Paul was talking about the gospel that was supposed to unify the warring factions in the book of Romans, this was the exact same question they had. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So absolutely, because God is looking for partnership, we have, in any way you understand the scriptures, the ability to misuse them. And with accommodation, we can certainly say, well, you know, at least I'm not doing that, so God can accept me. And of course, that misses the heart of God. All right, so that's, that's another set of thoughts. Not only that, but how does Jesus call people to repentance? Man, the skippers. I'm sorry, you guys. I just got to call them out right here. While the rest of you were even wondering about the English meaning of those words. They just said kindness. And they said it in unison as one flesh. And uh, I mean, I'm just saying that's pretty remarkable. What does Paul say? What is it that leads us to repentance? God's kindness. So Jesus calls all sorts of sinners to repentance, but he eats with them first. And Jesus was accused of condoning sin. They called him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. He was accused of condoning sin because his way of calling sinners to repentance was to share status with them over a meal and invite them then into his kingdom. So accommodation is kindness. It is love. It is what we do to each other. Married folks, do we not accommodate each other? I mean, my wife does some weird, weird stuff. And she's not here, so I just want to give a couple examples. <laughs> All right, so that's second set of questions. And, I, and again, there's so much more to be said, but these were such great questions, we wanted to deal with them just a little bit. All right, third set. Boom. 
If the stories in the Old Testament are a culmination leading up to the story sacrifice of Jesus, would the idea of triage for the Old Testament be turned into the story of our need for a doctor and Jesus being that and his sacrifice being our healing? Yes, Jesus is the interruption of the ideal into the middle of the real. Absolutely. And if that is true, does that shift from the Old Testament to the New be showing the way back towards what God intended for us in the garden? Absolutely. But it doesn't show the way back, only it shows the way forward into new creation. So the Bible opens with God dwelling with people in a garden, closes with God dwelling with people in a city, and there are amazing resonances between the two ends of the story. But Jesus is what human, to be human, looks like. And it looks like to forgive, and it looks like to serve, and it looks like self-sacrificial love, and so on and so on and so on, all the Jesus things. All right, I'm not going to read any more of that question next. Are we still living under exceptions for the ideal, or do the work of Christ on the cross, is the ideal possible now? Both. The church is supposed to be the place where we are restored to our original vocation, but does that happen perfectly? Nope. Read the epistles. Hey guys, let's not get drunk in communion, okay? Just to be clear, can we not do that? And can we not like play favorites over our favorite personalities? I mean, it is full of real, but it's always pointing to the ideal. Always. Yahweh must have been so tired of triaging us. <laughs> Thankfully, no. So was Christ sent as the final triage? I, I guess I could use that language, sure. When does the triaging stop as we continue to fall further from God's ideal? Well, I actually think in Christ, we are being transformed into God's image. So for those of us who take this whole Jesus thing seriously, the, the, I, I, the, we are being restored to the ideal, though imperfectly. When does triage stop? Well, not until we're perfected, if ever, when that is. Right? Next, in the Old Testament, God would depart from us, but with the Holy Spirit, God is now available always. Was this what, what, was this what was intended to be the final answer to God's predicament? Yeah, God didn't have a predicament. We did. And yes, yes, absolutely. The, 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 remember, the Old Covenant and the Old Testament are two different things. The Old Testament records the Old Covenant, but is bigger than that. One of the things the Old Testament records over and over and over is the, is the insufficiency of the Old Covenant by saying things like, hey, um, we're ultimately going to need a new spirit. We're going to need circumcised hearts. We're going to need an entirely renewed constitution. These are what the prophets talk about, a new exodus, a new rescue, and then Jesus comes bearing all of that language. Great stuff. So I kind of answered those as I went. Beautiful. All right, here we go. One, one last question on accommodation. Oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, it's me. Hold on. It's me. Jesus? It's Kevin. Jesus, you sound tired. Uh, yeah. Are you tired of triaging? Yes. Yes. I'll be back soon. <laughs> Check with your father first, but yes, that yep. would be great. Yep. Yes. Uh, do you think accommodation is so hard for us to understand because of the black and white belief we cling to of if we sin, we go to hell? Oh. If we repent from that sin, we get to go back to heaven. Like on our deathbed, we better repent real fast. Yeah. Or too bad. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Oh, go straight to so hell. Oh, so good. 
Man, that is such a great question. I, I think you can put a bow on it with that one, right? I'll put a bow. Absolutely, man. Um, I'm going to get one of those big Lexus bows and just, well, forget it. All right, I'm not going to, I was going to make a marital joke there, but I'm not going to. Now, um, so I would say this. Um, all right, repeat the question. I got, I got hijacked by the bow. Just, just give me the first few words. You got hijacked by a bow. Yep, yep. Uh, do you think accommodation is so hard for us to understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, keep going. <laughs> Stop interrupting Jesus. I know, um, I know, right? Do you think the accommodation is so hard yes. for us? Yes, okay, got it. I do really have it black now. And white I have it now. I have it now. All right. We have spent, and, and if you're new, I'm so sorry. We're weird. You're accommodating us right now. I got Repent, it. Repent, Mike. Repent, Mike. Repent. Repent. I know. I do all the time. Um, we have been, uh, and we've done some conversations on Sunday mornings around this, where the gospel that Jesus preaches doesn't sound like, stop sinning, uh, accept Jesus in your heart, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Jesus' gospel was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that includes forgiveness, and it kind of redefines heaven a little bit. But we are very much trapped into a way of thinking that the goal of Christianity is to get us to stop sinning. That is not the goal. Okay? The goal is restoration into the human vocation that was given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. Now that includes sinning less, but that's not the focus. And so, exactly right, dear questioner, one of the reasons we have such a hard time is because we measure everything on a continuum from sin or not sin. And, and sin is what damns us to hell. The, the judgment is coming not because human beings are sinners, it's because human beings have, have allowed the powers and the principalities uh, entrance into the world so that sin and death are now afoot in the world, collaborating with human sinfulness, and the whole momentum of human history is totally away from God's ideal for creation. That includes sinning, but it's bigger than that. So part of the problem of this is exactly right. We can't help but read our Bibles as manuals for holy living, so I sin less and be a good person, and so God accepts me when I die, and whatever repentance looks like on my deathbed. If you actually read Jesus, none of those categories are in there. Not one. And so we want to be a people that continually holds out the idea that what God is up to is new creation. That's what the resurrection signified. That God was beginning the new creation project in our midst. And that this is a new creation community where we learn to put off old creation dynamics. Anger, wrath, judgment, malice. And we put on new creation dynamics, forgiveness, reconciliation, generosity, kindness. And we can only do that corporately so that we begin, however faintly, to echo the promises of new creation in the world. Now, if you have a lot of questions about that, fantastic. I refer you to previous sermons. Um, I have one other accommodation set of questions, and then we'll see if we can hit uh, inerrancy. Okay? That was so important, I stood up. Okay. Whoops. How? We have to get this chair stabilized over and over and over again. Now, um, 
how do we, how can we interpret the Bible doesn't endorse what it records towards passages addressing homosexuality? How does God accommodate us today? Is homosexuality and accommodation are still considered sinful? When we consider the realism of the human world, does this at all relate to homosexuality, similar to divorce? If you're thinking, oh, I didn't know churches still talked about this stuff, um, I don't know, let's give it a shot. So, first of all, there is a, this is the point of debate between affirming people, people who affirm le- the legitimacy of homosexual practice and orientation and marriage, and people who are called not affirming who would hold tra- to, to kind of the traditional view of gender and sexuality. I was sitting across, so I planted a church in California. We had a large LGBTQ population there for whatever reason. And um, I was out to lunch with uh, five guys who'd been driving down from Hollywood who were verily o- very openly out and proud. And um, we were in, in a discussion just about, like, the theology of it all. And I said, well, you know, I said to them, well, I said, well, one of the things I have a really hard time is even, but before you even get to the passages about um, homosexuality and whether they're cultic references or pedestry or whatever, it's the, it's the ideal given in Genesis that Jesus seems to validate when asked about divorce. And I said, I'm just not sure that is the ideal. And the, the, the group said, we agree. It's not. But we were born and never chose attraction to the same sex. So what are we to do? And their argument was very similar to what the church has done with divorce. Why wouldn't gay marriage be an accommodation that points towards the ideal? You evangelicals, they said, have, have totally accepted divorce now as a legitimate option, and you don't question people at the door about divorce, and Jesus is really clear about that one. So why wouldn't you make another exception here? And I thought that was a, I thought that wasn't a bad counter to what the things I was saying. And so there are loads of people that think exactly that. There are other people that say accommodation, you can tell something's accommodated if there's movement on it. So women were treated one way and then they're, they're freer and they're freer and they're freer and Jesus sort of liberates them in the fullness of ministry. You don't see that same, traje- same trajectory around same-sex genital contact. So when we get to a text or a series of texts about homosexuality, I just want you to know how I approach them. Because we're, talk- we're not talking about homosexuality, we're talking about how we approach the Bible, correct? Next week, we're going to talk about context a whole bunch. And so I want to I do a little bit of context, all right? And I understand, I mean, everyone's going to disagree with something, and that's part of the issue, right, is we've all made up our minds, and then we're just looking for people to sort of validate where we're already at. I get that. Um, but I'm still wrestling. I'm still wrestling. And I'm wrestling because you have very real pastoral situations and a statement or a policy doesn't at all cover the real lives of people who've been deeply hurt by the church and are trying to figure this out. So I just want to model how I approach the Bible regarding the topic without getting into justifying a particular take on the topic. Sound good? You guys got awfully quiet. All right, so um, the way I approach any issue, but be, because we're talking about this one in specific, 
specifically. One of the things we're going to talk about next week is I always have to be mindful of what I bring to the Bible. Right? I don't just read it neutrally. Right? It's already been interpreted into English. It's already been translated. I'm already standing on a whole bunch of scholarship. But not only that, one of the, one of the great gifts of the last 10 years is the recognition that, that you read it differently depending on where you are in life. And so I always start approaching the Bible by saying, okay, who am I? Who am I? Well, I'm beloved by God in my brokenness, correct? Would you agree with that? And is there brokenness? Oh, yes. There's a lot of brokenness. I am a guest at Jesus' table. I am a gift recipient and not the host. Um, If you apply the Sermon on the Mount section where Jesus talks about the log and the speck, my sexual sin is far greater than anyone else's sexual sin. So that's who I am. But then I also ask, what community am I a part of? Well, as we just talked about, I'm a part of a community that is called to offer hospitality to everybody as we put off old creation dynamics and embrace new ones. And some of you may disagree with this, but I I feel like I am a part of a community that has done real harm to LGBTQ people. They are often wounded deeply by the church and set up in the worst possible state to figure this out. Kicked out of their families, kicked out of their churches. I am part of a community, and I don't just mean journey, I just mean the evangelical church in America. I'm part of a community that regularly fails to include single, divorced, and gay people. Right? Family is always the the super high emphasis. I'm part of a community that is focused on sexuality and sexual sins disproportionately relative to its emphasis in Scripture. I mean, that's just true. There are 2,000 verses on greed. And we would rather talk about the sexual sins of somebody else, correct? I mean, let's just be honest. All right? I'm, I'm great for accommodating uh, sin as long as it's mine that we're accommodating. I just find that interesting. I am part of a community that, because of the corruption in the American church, has lost almost all moral authority to speak pastorally on these issues. Our own house is so filthy. The the scandals of our celebrities, the cover-ups of sexual abuse. I mean, we don't even live by our sexual ethic. So when we insist that everyone else do, it just, I think it really stings and wreaks a bit of hypocrisy. Because I'm a part of that community, I believe that there should be deep and, and faithful acts of repentance towards the LGBTQ community. One of those is I want to lament, and I want to listen to the harm that's been done. Number two, and this is a big one, I want to eliminate all the double standards. Thank you. But the double standards are legion, right? Porn problem, no worries, we got, we got help for that. Right, premarital sex, we hardly even ask. We don't want to know, right? Only if a, a marriage blows up do we sort of get involved. But yet, two people of the same gender come in holding hands, and that is a whole different sin scale. And that's the game of the Pharisee. The game of the Pharisee is to rate differences in sin. 
And so one of my personal, personal postures is to see my sin as bigger than anyone else's and also to not try to rank the sins because I invariably rank in my favor. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me. I believe that affirming and non-affirming as categories are not helpful and neither of them capture the teaching of Jesus on this topic. I think the teaching of, this, of Jesus on this topic is exactly what we find him doing with table fellowship with all sorts of people, some of whom were sexually broken, some of whom were self-righteous. And so our, we have a posture. Journey has a statement on human sexuality and it's this, there is no statement. We think statements, Jesus didn't give statements. Jesus shared meals. And so there, there are many of us who hold the traditional view. Absolutely. And there are others of us who would hold a non-traditional view. And the goal is that we would break bread together and learn to love and serve each other. When we get to Genesis, we'll deal with, well, what's the ideal? And I think there's a, a, a case to be made. The creation ideal is male and female. Great. But I don't even live up to that perfectly. So what do we do? The only thing I'm, I, I'm convinced of, and this is, this, is, this is our church, is that we're to offer hospitality to bring people into the orbit of community, word, and spirit, and then to see what happens. And to do that, we simply cannot prejudge who is welcome at the table and who's not. Because we are all guest recipients ourselves. So, wherever you find yourself, you're welcome. And we'll talk, we'll, we'll, we're not going to avoid the topic or avoid the Bible passages, but less important is our particular view, and more important is how we create a hospitable community. And not just around sexuality, but politics. We have some people who are convinced that Trump is the Antichrist. And we have some people who are convinced that Biden's name is Brandon. We have, we have some people convinced that masks are a satanic plot. And we have some people who are convinced that masks is just what it means to love your neighbor. Right? We have some people who come from religious backgrounds that are more conservative than you could possibly imagine, and they're scandalized that I would wear shorts and flip-flops. And then we have some people limping in here who never thought they'd ever step into a community again. We have some people who are here who think illegal immigration is like the number one issue we should deal with, and we have people here who are illegal immigrants. This kind of mess is what we see in the book of Acts. That doesn't mean we don't have opinions. We all, we got, all of us have opinions. But it means how we hold them is a better representation of fidelity to Jesus. Now, I'm not going to ask if you have any questions about that. Um, because this is not a sermon about that. But I also didn't want to neglect those questions. And I realize some of you might be saying, oh, well, you know, whatever. You know, what a, what a cop out. No, I think this is actually the harder way to live. The easier way is just to have a statement and be done with it, not actually have to love people. So I'm very anti-statements. I just don't think they represent the pastoral vocation of the church. All right, can we change topics? All right, t talk to me. Okay. No, you don't have to clap. I mean, that's nice of you. 
All right, well, let's wade into more wa uh, and deeper water. All right, first of all, look at me, look at me. I don't know how you react to all this stuff. I'm, I'm delighted to be a part of a community that allows co real conversations to take place like this. You have no idea. I've been a pastor in probably five or six churches, sometimes the senior, sometimes the teaching, and I've never been able to have conversations like this in a church community, ever. And that is a testament to Kevin and Susie and the elders. It's a testament to you. Because we don't, we're not interested in pretending to be Christian, right? And we're not interested in following people who are pretending to be Christian. We're really interested in like living into the kingdom as a, as a community. And so of course we have to, we have to talk about stuff that's real and is going on in the world. The goal isn't that you agree with me at all, ever. But the goal is that we wrestle together, even if we come to different conclusions. All right? So there is this topic called inerrancy. It's a word the Bible doesn't use, but lots of people use it about the Bible. The word in, in inerrant, means without. Uh, and errant means error. So inerrant is the idea that the Bible is without error. How does this jive with the fact that we talked last week about the Bible saying there are windows in the sky that allow rain to come through? Is that error? So I want to talk briefly, briefly, briefly about this topic. Good Lord. All right, so here's one definition of inerrancy right here. The God-breathed scriptures are wholly true in all things that they assert in the original autographs and therefore function with the authority of God's words. Now, oh, go back one. Let's sit on that one first. Thank you. The God-breathed scriptures are wholly true in all things that they assert in the what? Now, autograph just means the original copy. Do we have the original copy? No. But we have lots and lots of copies of lots and lots of copies, and we think with great confidence we can reproduce like 98% of what the original might have been like. There are about 400 words in the New Testament where there's disagreement. There are different like literary trans, uh, 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 what would I say, literary um, histories or manuscript um, disagreements. And so if inerrancy just means, hey, God doesn't lie, I'm all in. Right? If inerrancy means God doesn't lie, amen, baby. God is not ever a God of falsehood. Ever. Ever. This is, that's a Wikipedia definition of inerrancy. This comes from the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, which was like, but I want you to notice how nuanced this thing is. Inerrancy is the view that first, when all the facts are known, they will demonstrate that the Bible in its second original autographs and third, correctly interpreted, is entirely true and never false in all that it affirms. Now, would we agree with that? Yeah, if we knew everything and knew exactly how to interpret the Bible, it would be true? Yes, of course. How helpful is that statement? Do we have the originals? No. Do we, do we know how to properly interpret them? No, we have 32,000 denominations. Right? And when all the facts become known, we all see through a, a glass darkly. So <coughs> people will ask me sometimes, 
hey, how come you don't use the word inerrant to describe the Bible? Part of the reason is, if that's what we mean by inerrant, it's super unhelpful. Because what does it mean to properly interpret? Usually when people say the Bible properly interpreted, that means you have to agree with my interpretation. So if you've ever been around people that are like, hey, if you don't believe in a literal six-day creation, you don't believe the Bible. Inerrancy at times can function as a, a way of beating each other over the head. Right? So what we want to say, and not only that, but think about this. Let's say parents. I'm guessing you were parents. To that one? Let's say... I know. This is going to get real specific real quick. Let's say she writes you the most moving letter about how much you both have meant to her, how much you have shaped her, how much you have supported her and blessed her. And you're literally just weeping. Would you ever use the word inerrant to describe that letter? No. I'm going to answer that. No. <laughs> is that the dumbest thing ever? Oh yeah, this beautiful love letter is without error. What, what does that even mean? How can a poem be inerrant? How can a Hallmark card be inerrant? There are so many parts of the Bible where you're getting poetry. How is poetry inerrant? Right? And so... I affirm inerrancy if it means God never lies. True. And I think the Bible is an utterly reliable guide to what God intends for us to understand. True. But I'm not sure I buy all that jargon. You know, and I certainly don't buy inerrancy as a tribal affiliation where if someone disagrees with my interpretation, I think they deny the Bible. So I think it's, it's kind of dangerous. I think there are better words. So I say scripture is authoritative. I think it's inspired. I think it's true. I think it's the word of God. Absolutely. But I just wanted to deal with that briefly because people will ask loads of questions about that. And, and I think inerrancy also means that within what was expected of the history and the writing of that day, the Bible always tells the truth. But the hard work is understanding what was expected for the literature of that day. And when you understand that, I think it is absolutely true. Absolutely and utterly reliable. Any questions on that for five minutes? Oh, okay. I'm not even going to wait. I'm just going to keep going. All right. Oh, I'm closing. So yes, do it. It's right. We're done. All right, ladies and gentlemen, stand up. We made it. No one threw anything. <laughs> Babies were dedicated. Right? <sighs> All right. I want to pray a blessing over us today. Again, what an honor to be a part of this community. Close your eyes if you would. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day our trespasses. No, did I mess it up? Because I keep going King James versus NIV. All right, let me start over. The most important prayer we have, okay? 
Jesus. He, he forgives you. It's okay. All right, because I started in King James, and it just threw me. All right. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today, thank you for daily bread. And forgive us as we forgive those who have offended us. God, would you lead us not into temptation, and would you deliver us from evil? Because yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We made it. All right, guys. Hey, we have a new to journey lunch after the 11 o'clock service, and we have discussion. Kevin, the voice of Jesus, is doing the discussion class out there to the left. God bless you all. Have a great day. Football is back.